Thank you very much, Vice-Chancellor Louise, and thank you very much, Dr. Clara Barker. I just want to say to you, you're my absolute hero. Um, we'll save the proper loving for later. So um, how does a working class dyke, butch dyke at that, end up with... Uh, end up here. In this, in here, when I was about 12, my social worker, who was a lovely woman, uh, she came to Oxford on holiday. Her daughter was here, and she sent me a postcard. Can you still hear me? <laughs> she sent me a postcard of the Dreaming Spires of Oxford, and... When she got back, I interrogated her. I said, what, what have you sent me that for? And she was like, Louise, you could go to Oxford. So I swore at her, as was my usual response to praise. Um, but flash forward nearly 40 years, and here I am stood in front of you lot. Um, I haven't prepared a lecture. I'm just going to kind of freestyle it tell you about my life, most of which is in my book Glue, which is also a one-woman show. I perform this to many different audiences and I always get the question, but how did you make it here? How did you survive everything that you've survived? I have no idea. Just to give you a little picture of what my childhood was like. I was given a file when I was 18. Well, it was called a file by the nuns. And what it was was actually a piece of paper with a list on. And the list was this. March 1969, born, Withington Hospital, 8.50 a.m. 29th of April to 3rd of August, 1969, placed in private foster care. 3rd of August, transferred to adoption nursery. 3rd of August, placed for fostering with a view to adoption, awaiting satisfactory medical report. Next nine months in hospital. 2nd of June, 1970, adoption order granted at Manchester County Court. 25th of December, 1979, adoption breakdown, admitted to Francis Court. 4th of January, 1980, returned to adoptive family. 11th of February, 1980, readmitted into care. 27th of February 1981, transferred to Glendine Assessment Unit, Manchester Local Authority. May 1981, admitted to Wingate. June 1981, admitted to Mount Carmel. 11th of January 1982, placed for fostering. 1st of February, returned to Wingate. 
1st of June 1984, transferred to foster care. 17th of October 1983, admitted to care. 28th of February 1986, transferred to Darley Hostel. 3rd of January 1987, discharged from care. That was it. That was the abridged version of my file. That was my life. About 13 different children's homes, foster placements, as you heard in the list. Um, when I left care, I want to do this poem. When I left care, it was amazing. It was freedom. And it felt like this. Dream riding. Light slips up through the pavement cracks. Dream riding. I am everything. I can smell everything, touch anything. It's an all or nothing dream. When I dream, I fly. This city is mine, but it's not like when I'm awake. It's not fake. I dream, I ride, I fly. I dream a ride in stereophonic, quadraphonic. My bike is bionic, six million dollar. We have the capability. Buzzing I am, buzzing. Lungs expand, air drifts, breath, I can breathe. Wheels, pure titanium, caught in it, lost in it, zigzag, zag, zig. My fucking dreams are so fucking big. The roof didn't fall down. Navigation, hyperventilation, ignore the lights just like when I'm awake, but this is ace. I change the lights, no red nor green nor amber, multicolored, fractal traffic lights. This city is mine, all mine, all mine. Change the colors, change the signs. Let it all sink, seep into me, deep, deep, deep. Chase myself as if I was a sniper. I am sound, swirling bass, dub styly on the overdrive, zipping between lorries, jump up on pavements, sing really loud, super styling. Dealing with the bollocks people shout at you, get off on the looks that say you're mad you are, dream riding. The beat is in me, millions of roots, I know my way round here, you know, and then it happens. There it is, the cenotaph. Drops down, it's a ramp, and I'm off. Up the top, up the top, and I land on the roof of the library. Zip round the top, perfect 360 skid, and push off over the top of the town hall. Clock spinning backwards, like in one of them films. Land on the hands, perfect. Magic energy, best way to put it. Moves me up a level, dream riding. No more hiding. This city's mine, suckles me like a mother. I'm awake, alive, a parcel waiting to arrive. It's in me. I splash down into the fountain. I love that fountain. It was made to jump in. Skid 180, splash up, mash up, change all the adverts, replacing them with blitverts. Shake the can. Skyline's mine anyway. Then, there it is, blue tower shimmering, fractal traffic lights reflected. Revelation, I can do, do, do it. Take off land and pedal like the clappers, up the top, up the top, lungs bursting, and I just fucking go. That moment 
when you defy the laws of gravity, physics, catch air, catch air and fly. Cheers. So that's what leaving care felt like. But as I left care, what was it like? What was 1987 like? There was all that minor strike. There was, uh, I, the first thing, just rewinding a little bit, the first strike, the first political action that I ever instigated was um, and I planned it in my typing class of my convent school, was a strike against the youth training schemes because that was basically all that was on offer to me. My social worker might have thought I could have come here to Oxford, but nobody else thought that. Um, at that time, the trajectory that was kind of thrown out and planned for me was that I would, I'd already been groomed a bit when I was in care, that does happen, you know, what's happening in Rochdale. It happened to most kids in care, I'm not lying. And you absorb it, you get on with it. So the trajectory that was planned for me was that, and it was said to me as well, it was said in job interviews and everything that I would end up in prison or a prostitute or dying, and hearing those things were both good and bad for me, because I just thought, I'm going to cling on to this rock that's spinning millions of miles per hour in, you know, throughout a space, I'm clinging on, I'm staying and I'm going to be something, I didn't have a clue what that was. So, I left care at 17. The reason I left care at 17 and not 18 was that I came out. I'd already been to, so I'd already planned a school strike. I'd, oh yeah, I went to Greenham Common, got groomed into the Socialist Workers' Party, but we don't talk about that. For about six months I was there selling it in Stockport. And then, no. Rewind just a little bit. What was it like being a young queer in care? So, it, the, most of the homes were run by nuns. The nuns were lovely when I came out. But the lay staff, who were ultra-religious, kept trying to tell me that I couldn't be a lesbian. And when I eventually got my file a couple of years ago, I was written about as weird because I was boyish and I refused to wear makeup and I refused to wear skirts and things like that. And the homophobia that's, that drips off the pages of the full file, is, it's terrible because, of course, the other girls in care weren't, weren't um, discouraged from bullying me when I finally came out. So anyway, what I did was I went to Moss Side Housing Office, all full of all my little revolutions, and I claimed political asylum <laughs> at the council office. And 
my city, the city of dream riding, the city that I'm so lucky to have been born in and grown up in is Manchester. And at the time, it was like a socialist republic. It was great. And they, the people at the Mosside housing office said, yeah, you can have a flat. So I left care <laughs> and, oh no, I didn't tell you. But, so it, there were loads of stuff went on. I'd go out clubbing and the woman who ran the home would send the police to drag me out and all of that and take me home. It was a free taxi. I didn't mind too much. So it was, it was hard, you know, it wasn't easy at all, but I, I stuck to my guns and I was like, once I decided I was a lesbian, that was it. And um, nobody was going to talk me out of it. But I came out... I was doing a youth training scheme, the very thing that I'd protested against. And I was in this little flat and on my own completely. But two things happened. My social worker had got me into this contact youth theatre, which it's beautiful to read that part of the file because the social worker writes how I found myself, how I found my voice. So I started, I got asked to write a play and I told the director to fuck off. I didn't know how to write a play. And it was the first Christmas out of care when the door closed and all I had was this little hamper with spam in it. Uh, I thought, maybe, maybe that's my way that I can survive, that I can cling on to this rock spinning millions of miles per hour through space. The other thing that happened, and it was almost a gift, really, was Margaret Thatcher um, allowed for Clause 28, what became Section... Well, it was called Clause 27 then. It became Clause 28, and she gave me something to fight for. Thank you very much, Mrs Thatcher. That's all I'll thank you for. And... I was in a club one night, the number one club in Manchester, and somebody bunged a leaflet in my hand with all these little bombs on it. And it was about clause 27 stroke eight. And it was saying all the things that were gonna happen, you know. Uh, but the worst, the thing that I remember the most was it said, gay literature would be removed from libraries. And I don't know, my head went west. Because all I had when I was a kid was libraries. I spent so much time in libraries. They were warm, you know. Um, you could hide in libraries. And through, on the bookshelves, um, there were all these, because again, it was radical Manchester. There were all these, like, fe there was all this feminist literature. There was a book called Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. There was Maya Angelou. There was all of that. So I was like, oh, you're going to remove those books off the shelves, are you, over my dead body? And so I joined the campaign against Clause 28, the Northwest Campaign for Lesbian and Gay Equality. And I'd never met such people in my life. They accepted me. 
and it was wonderful. It was a wonderful age to arrive in a room like this. And what they did, because they were all radical and everything, was they shoved me to the front because I was one of the few working class people, let alone like, you know, barely housed, grown up in care. Um, I've always been a bit gobby, as you can probably tell. And, you know, I used that gob. And there was a hundred of us in that campaign. And what they used to do with me was send me all over the country, um, speaking to rooms like this, and going, right, there's this law, right? Come in and we've all got to come out. You can't be hiding in them clubs no more. You can't be, you know what I mean? It's terrible. It, 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 it's really hard, really, to articulate what it was like 30-odd years ago and how frightened so many people were, particularly teachers, by, and especially by this law that was coming, which was the first anti-gay law since the decriminalisation. And so I got used to going over to London. I got used to going up to Scotland. And what we were doing, our campaign, was we decided we were going to plan the biggest ever queer demo in the world. And we even tried to get Elizabeth Taylor to come and everything. It was like, you know, and we had, we were a great team. We, they were mainly middle class. It was split 50-50, men and women. There was always a bum fight over something. And the lesbians and gay men at that time, they'd been through the 70s together. I'd not, I didn't know anything, you know, anything about that. And they'd had all their rows and... It's, again, it's difficult to articulate how difficult it was to bring lesbians and gay men to sit in a room and agree. And agree on speakers, agree on the march, agree on everything. But so, And we had some right fights, I tell you, some really funny ones. Um, but I'd oft, often be stood in the middle because I didn't have all that history of what, those, what me older brothers and sisters had been through. I was like, no, what we all need to do is come together, um, fight together, and then we need to be as broad as possible. We need to have straight people on the march. We, you know, and it was amazing. Blow me, it took us six weeks, and somehow we managed to pull off in Manchester the biggest ever LGBTQIA and our lovely straight allies all together and we took over Manchester City Centre. But what was lovely was my Manchester, my council, they'd stuck up a big banner on our town hall and it was basically, it's become like the, the rallying cry of Manchester. Everybody is welcome in Manchester. Everybody, you know. And yeah, I got to lead the march 17 and a bit, and I look livid, and I look really hard on all the photos, because <laughs> somebody said to me, Lou, look after them, and it was Michael Cashman and Ian McKellen. I knew who Michael Cashman was because of EastEnders, but I didn't have a clue who Ian McKellen was, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so it was my job to look after him, and I did, 
and we were terrified. I'm telling you, we had this massive banner, this big pink banner, and I think it was flame proof because we were like, what if people, you know, petrol bombers, what if the police charge us? Because the, the police were a very different police, let me tell you, because they were being run by that James Anderton, you know, the God's cop. Do you remember him? Do you know who I mean? He was, the, he was in charge of our police and he was trying to get all the gay clubs shut down because we danced too sexy for him. Uh, licentious dancing, it was called. And so we were up against that as well. That we couldn't look to the cops to protect us, but you could look to Lou to protect you. Because I, 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 I was so livid and it was amazing. When we set off, there was, we were so frightened that, that something would happen. And then there was like this force and this energy. And then you look back and I've never seen so many people apart from on, you know, when United wins a cup. You know, but they were all there for that reason. And they were all there to be unified together. Together, we would fight this. So we did. And then we lost. We lost. The thing became law. But we changed our city forever, you know? And we, and the sort of, what we managed to achieve in terms of unity, to bring men and women together to fight together. And then how that has grown to be inclusive of everybody's identity, including them straight people, God bless them. Um, right, so what else happened? Yeah, so I had a secret office on the, in the very roof of um, Manchester Town Hall from which I planned and we planned this march and this revolution. And next door to that office was the Virage Mendes defence campaign. Virage Mendes was a Sri Lankan, Sinhala Sri Lankan refugee who was, well, actually he was technically an overstayer in this country. And he and his comrades set up a campaign and he was in sanctuary in a church in Hume and he was a seven-foot revolutionary communist. And he had to stay in this church for a thousand days and nights. And the office was next door and I got talking to the activists and I went to see Viraj and became part of that campaign too. And the reason I really started caring about refugees and asylum seekers and things was because I was internally displaced in this country. I had no home. And becoming part of that campaign was incredible too. Because it taught me about this thing about a broad church and the thing about, you know, an injury to one is an injury to all. 
And through that campaign, I got involved in the anti-apartheid movement. And it was incredible, I wasn't yet 18. So meeting all of these people who opened up my mind to a thing like this, education and learning and things like that, it was just life-changing and it was, it was also difficult. As I say, we lost the Clause 28 battle. Took a long time to get that off the statute books. Virage got deported. And it taught me that what we're fighting for, we're not always gonna, we're not always gonna win now, you know? So therefore, we're always gonna be fighting. We're always gonna be on this footing of, you know, there's always gonna be someone unequal. And what do we do? Do we stay in our own lane and just think, well, I'm all right, and pull the ladder up on equality? Or do we keep fighting and keep sharing and keep expanding the wonderful umbrella of the LGBTQIA, as many letters as we can get in there? Because that, what all that is about, is about fighting equality together, being united. And we can't let anything at all get in the way of that. So, a couple of years ago, I got invited to talk about Clause 28 and being a working class poet, playwright, and all of that, in Brighton. And it was my good fortune to meet Dr. Clara, who stood there and illustrated and compared the headlines from 30 odd years ago about what they were saying about me to now and what the media says about trans people. And I don't know, it got, got me in the same way that Clause 28 got me. So I'm a lesbian, but I'm an inclusive lesbian. And I'm always going to be the person that's looking for who is not equal. And at the moment, that's trans people. And I believe we all have to stand for trans people and stand together and don't let anything break our umbrella apart. I remember when the symbol for LGBT people was the pink triangle. Then, and that symbol, in case you don't know, came from the death camps when millions of us were killed. Then we decided to have this rainbow flag. And to be honest with you, I was a bit freaked out about that at first. I was, because I'm anti-nationalist as well. I believe in no borders. Absolutely, we don't need borders on this rock spinning through space. What do we need that for? So I was a bit like, ooh, uh, are us gays having to get nationalists now? But now I've got over it. And I was so happy to walk through the streets of Oxford and see, like, up on the roof here, a gay banner 
screaming equality. And this is a safe space for everybody. Everybody is welcome. And I, and I believe we've got to keep to that, you know. Because, you know, 30-odd years ago, we were so relieved when we had straight people marching with us, when we had allies. So if you're feeling all equal and entitled in your lane now, look to left and right. There is somebody who isn't equal. How are you going to bring them up? How are you going to rate? How are you going to stand by their side? And it can be really simple. Me, I like to organise a demo. So after I met Dr. Clara, that's what I did. I took over the front of um, the Manchester Pride with a big banner. And it's, what is it? Manchester lesbians stand by our trans. And managed to get 50 people. We're only allowed 50 people. But we got it to look. And it was, and I did it for two reasons. I wanted to remind my community of its political activism and standing up for each other and the wonderful, kind people we are, because we have to be. Because, you know, that was what was wonderful about finding that I was a lesbian. When I came out into this gay world, there was a load of people who didn't have their families too, and so we became each other's family, chosen family. That's what we are to each other. Now, families always have the secrets and always have the weirdos and always have the embarrassing uncle and aunt getting drunk and, and people saying weird things and, and bun fights at Christmas and all of that. But, you know, we're family and we must stay family to each other. So I didn't realise I was going to go off on one like that. <laughs> um, so, glue. Glue. Glue tells the story of me searching for my birth mother. And I start, as well as sorting the world out at 17, 18, I also started searching for my mum. And uh, 12 years of going backwards and forwards to these same nuns telling me the same thing that they'd been writing letters and there was no reply. And then, one day, I get a letter and the nun tells me to come in to see her and it was a Saturday and that had never happened before. And she put me in this room and it was a different room to the normal one that I'd sit in, which was just two plastic chairs and a box of tissues. I strike my eyes out cry my eyes out and she'd tell me that my mother hadn't been in touch and this Saturday I turned up and the nun told me that my mum had turned up to the office and it was the same office where she'd left me behind 30 years earlier and it was a wonderful feeling and instead of going on about it I'll just tell you it. So, oh yeah. So, the nun, after she said, so your mum's come, all of that, I went into shock and sorted all that out. I didn't cry. 
And then she went, what are you going to do with yourself now, Louise? I said, oh, I'm going to go to Fletcher Moss Gardens. And she went, oh, do you know it? Do you go there? I said, that's where I've always gone. Um, to get a bit of peace from those children's homes. And she went, make sure you get a couple of bottles of port with you. <laughs> so everything made sense. The spider's web catching the sunlight. The name written on the bench I'd been sitting on. The pregnant woman taking the weight off her feet while she watches her toddler search for his reflection in the pond. The old ladies who pause when they see me, like they know what my truth is. The man I share a sig with. I couldn't tell them what I'd just found out, but these strangers knew that this day was mine and I felt connected to them. I heard my ancestors. I swear I did, as it took me 13 hours to get from Didsbury to Hume. I heard them. In those 13 hours, I experienced joy. Like nothing I'd ever known. Finally, somebody wanted me, was claiming me, I was in my own skin. Something kicks in in the back of your brain when you're handed over, given up, relinquished. When you can no longer smell your mother's milk, something called survival kicks in. I'm sure of it. For the first time, I felt alive. It didn't matter that she'd meet me just the once. Just the once was all I needed. Just the once to see who I looked like. And I really looked like my uncle. Just the once to find out who I am. Just the once to tell me where I come from. Just the once it was enough. Just the once wouldn't mess up her life. Just the once because I don't need a mum anymore. Just the once, I wanted nothing from her. Just to see, just to understand, that was all. It was all arranged by the adoption place. They had a special house in Didsbury. It's similar to nearly every house I grew up in as a kid. On the outside, it looks like a normal house. But on the inside, it had the same institutional colours, institutional chairs, and institutional air. The windows are misted out. I'm put in a room. I wait. I pace. She is late. The nun is getting really anxious. What's another hour after 30 years? The nun is getting really stressed. I've never seen her like that before. It's usually me that's in a mess. But today, my glue is holding me together. Then, the sound of a car pulling up. The doorbell rings. 
I can hear her muffled voice outside, obviously panicking. Something about taxis. Something about her hair. Then the door opens. And the woman who's there to support me, mum just says shit happens and takes off. There is my mother. I look her straight in the eyes. I know those eyes. They are my eyes. Exactly the same shade of green. I know her. She looks into my eyes and she knows me. 30 years melt away. She starts shaking. I start coughing. And all my dreams of suddenly transforming into a tall, thin, six-foot woman disappear as I see what I'll look like in 30 years' time. <laughs> At the same time, we both say tea. Someone brings us tea. We scoop each other up and sit down. We sit in exactly the same way. We are ready to begin. Then, all her guilt poured out. And one of the first, first things I had to say to her was, I'm a lesbian. <laughs> and she didn't care. She didn't care. My mum didn't care. Amazing. So the story goes on, and uh, many things happen, such as ending up in a dock, cracking up, you know. There was something about Growing up, going through this identity search, what am I, coming up with that I'm a lesbian and then nobody, the whole world is against that, to coming to this very simple truth of I stood in front of the woman who gave birth to me and she didn't judge me. How lucky am I? Yeah. So, it goes, it, it, it was interesting. The, the person that I felt I was fragmented completely, though, when I met my mum. And it's not an easy journey. It's not easy for the mothers. But I've got some notes of caution here. If this is you and you're going to go and meet your mum or whatever, ask questions of the right people. Those you left behind will have more questions than you. They are looking to you to complete the puzzle because they are too scared of the truth. Notes of caution. Do not ever perform the role of prodigal. No, ma no matter how many fatted calves are slain in your name. They might treat you like the golden child, but really, they want to eat the calf themselves. Notes of caution. The sun will shine right through your arse until you start asking questions. Notes of caution. In hindsight, ignorance is bliss. Notes of caution. Anything other than the facts will fail to satisfy you. 
notes of caution. Be wary of who is telling stories and be interested in those who are saying nout. Notes of caution. There will be some real moments, a glimmer of belonging that you can hold on to, no matter how fleeting those moments are. Notes of caution. Family is a situation comedy. They'll take the piss right out of you. Notes of caution. Don't ever feel guilty ever for feeling like you had a lucky escape the day your mother gave you away. Notes of caution. Thank your mother at some point. Send her a postcard, perhaps with a bunch of flowers. She did give birth to you, even though she was never yours. But the postcard, the flowers, that's where your responsibility ends. You are not your mother's keeper. And in conclusion, <clears throat> if somebody attacks you for the way you look, then do it more. That advice was given to me by a wonderful drag queen from Dublin. I'd been attacked yet again for the way I looked. Ironically, after a therapy session for my PTSD, I've been called boyish, tomboyish all my life. I've also questioned who I am all of my life. My adopted mother was the first person to call me butch when she'd heard I came out as a dyke. It was the first time I'd heard that word. She adopted me because she wanted another girl. What she got was me. And she made it plain that she hated me as she was jettisoning, jettisoning, jettisoning me out of the door, age nine. It was one of her complaints to the social worker that took me into care. When I got my full file from social services, it was full of comments about me being boyish. It was not a good thing to be. It was a sign that I was odd and different. Since leaving care, a chorus of strangers have chased me through the streets, demanding to know, are you a boy or a girl? Are you a man or a woman? When I answered back, I'd got my jaw broken, head kicked in, I'd fight back, then wake up the next day feeling shame as if I'd been involved in a fight. I never told anybody for years. I didn't know you could tell the cops. Growing into an adult in the 80s, you didn't tell the cops anything. As usual, as usually, they would be attacking you too. My existence seemed to make people livid because they didn't know what box to fit me in. In the 80s, butch wasn't the thing to be either. It was a time of feminism, examining everything, including butch femme. I had a go at being a lipstick lesbian. I grew my hair. It didn't work. 
I feel like I'm in drag if I wear a dress. I've only owned one and that's my sparkly red halter neck, my graduation dress that I wore with my Doc Martens with the split up to my armpits and fuck, I look gorgeous in it. However, I don't feel like me wearing it. People still ask that question, am I or am I? Then one day I shaved off all the curls. That was a bad move, having a skinhead, because then people equated shaved head with aggression. Then I found a decent barber, a place I love to go, because there I can hear men's conversations. Those times when everybody nods their head at a point well made. Men are all right, really, but I'm not a man. I grew a quiff, quiff you could ski on, but I couldn't get it to stand up tonight, forgive me. Now the question has changed. Now I'm asked about which pronoun I'd like to be referred by. I'm misgendered pretty much every day. I get called sir regularly. I quite like it now. Every day I'm crossing borders. That day though, when I put on my first tailored suit, I watched heads turn. I do look hot in it. Men and women check me out now. <laughs> check down, check to see which side I'm hanging. Yeah, it happens. Every day I'm crossing borders. First to find out who I am, then to answer the question, how do I define myself? How do I define myself? Like this. I am a woman. I fucking bled for 40 years. I'm a butch woman. I'm a butch feminist. I am a handsome woman. There are no more questions left in the world. Thank you.